Alrighty then, good afternoon everybody. We have reconvened. Just like I always said we would. I'll never let you down. I'll never fail to reconvene a session of Colin when I have pledged to do so. And uh, Richard here has returned. He was gone for last week's iteration of this call-in, but chose to uh, grace us with his presence once again this week. So let's see if we can get him back on the speaker stage. That would be nice. Okay, there he is. Hey, Michael. Hey. So, uh, yeah, I guess we took a one-week vacation. I guess it's appropriate for July. I didn't actually cease doing call-ins, but you and I did not uh, did yeah. not convene for a week, so I'm sure everyone was devastated by that. <laughs> yeah, I had uh, I was in D.C. Yeah, I was traveling all of last week, so didn't didn't have time. But glad to be back. the the, the war The war has been taking a little bit of a break for us, uh, so that was very uh, considerate of the Russians and the Ukrainians to hold off while we weren't doing a, while we weren't doing a show. Right, but there's there's plenty of conflict still to uh, comment on. I'm actually in D.C. myself right now. Um, so you what left you and I arrived. What are you What are you doing there? Well, uh, this week I went to the America First Policy Institute Summit, the first annual. America First. Oh, that's is that Stephen Miller's thing? No, um, he was there. He was kind he of. He has some kind of America around. first. He has a legal thing, right? America. For, he has something called. America well, first. I mean, there are different America first branded organizations that I guess do different things. Uh, but this was probably like the epicenter of the. So the former, he has America first legal foundation. That's his thing. He said American Institute. It's policy. This was a different thing. This was a different thing. He was there. It's called the uh, America First Policy Institute. That's right. And this was their first summit. And, I think they're. Um, are you sure they're not related? You're sure they're not like the same people? There may be. I, I'm not. I'm not sure. Actually, I don't think that Miller has a formal leadership role in this organization, but I, I could be wrong. I, I don't know for, for sure. So it's Larry Kudlow, Brooke Rollins. Chad yeah, Cole. that's the this one. Is just Trump, this is just the Trump uh, administration. That's interesting. Okay, no Stephen Yeah, Miller. so okay. I mean, this is basically, I mean, it's basically the out-of-power Trump administration, you know, deciding that they needed to form a think tank of some kind to... Um, furnish uh, policy proposals for the next administration and basically, you know, incubate the staff that will be dispatched to the next administration. I know that there are some America First adherents who uh, vigorously dispute that the this organization could authentically represent America First, but I think that just kind of eventually collapses into a pretty meaningless semantic dispute because, I mean... You know, they're former Trump administration officials uh, and still ardent supporters. Um, Trump himself 
appeared at the summit on the for, for the big final uh, event and gave a speech. It was his first time back in D.C. Are you going to write? You're um, going to write on this, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm in the middle of writing on it now. Okay, um, that's going to be fun. Yeah, <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, there's. Uh, I I don't know how you sort of uh, discern who is the avatar of the America first movement. If you like disqualify the America first policy Institute that was formed by Trump administration officials and has the blessing of Donald Trump himself. Um, Now, I mean, this particular event, it wasn't open to the public. So it was mainly populated by, you know, um, Republican operatives, people who had worked on the Trump uh, campaign in its various incarnations or uh, worked for the federal government in some capacity while Trump was in office and uh, and or, you know, their local Republican officials from around the country. Um, So it wasn't like a grass. It wasn't billed as and wasn't intended as a grassroots uh, event, but it might even be more significant than that, because these are the people who are probably going to be comprising the uh, actual governing apparatus should. uh, What did you learn other than Jody Ernst uh, talking about Russia? Was anything else interesting? Anything you didn't expect? Um, nothing that I didn't really expect. I mean, on a meta level, it was kind of interesting because aside from Trump's speech, um, you know, which was like the culminating event on on the final day, there was fewer media there than I would have thought. Like there was, I had pretty good access to, there was Congress and senators. Like, you know, I spoke to Lindsey Graham briefly. I spoke to uh, Senator Daines. I spoke to Rick Scott. A um, bunch of other uh, congressmen, and uh, as far as I could tell, there were few media there really, other than me and um, like or conservative media like Newsmax and stuff. Um, so I'm not sure why that is. I'm not sure if maybe they had a more stringent uh, accreditation uh, policy, but that was a sort of curious to me. You know, I focused, you know, when I did have an opportunity to talk to the uh, to, to elected officials, I, I asked them about uh, Ukraine or Taiwan-related issues uh, just because that seemed to me the clearest point of tension, potentially, between them, you know, claiming the mantle of America first, which is, like, largely understood to be on the more non-interventionist side of the debate, I guess, vaguely, or even isolationist, you might say. Um, But there was really no indication of really any of that at all, Uh, even on Ukraine, where you you thought there might have been more of an opening for people of this bent to stake out more of a, you know, unabashedly anti-interventionist position. But if anything, it was the opposite. So is this what do you see this woman Kieran Skinner looks like she's on their they have an academic board of advisors uh is this woman a super I think this woman's like a super hot she's hot she's she's a black woman and she said like China is like a race did you see this it was like this is going to be a, a yeah yeah I've, I've, I've talked to this woman yeah I know yeah. I know that woman I've talked to her before <laughs> and she's a she's a hawk right so she's like a, yeah a, she was there uh-huh uh, um 
Yeah, but uh, you know, but I, uh, I, but you know, one of the questions I would try to pose. Oh, she was hired by Pompeo, of course. Okay. Yeah, you know, one of the questions I would try to pose to people is, um, you know, something to the effect of, do, do you regard this organization and the larger like project that you're engaged in to be? representative of America first, as I think lots of people generally had had regarded it, which is more non-interventionist or something. And I actually put that question directly to Lindsey Graham um, because uh, for a while now, Lindsey Graham has been among the most direct proponents of another Trump candidacy. Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't just allude to it or... Uh, hint at it. He actually explicitly declares that he wants Trump to run again, and he expects that he will run again. Um, so, you know, I asked uh, Lindsey Graham. I mean, do you, do you do you regard Trump as the as a vehicle for your preferred foreign policy vision? Because a lot of America First adherents you know, out there in the country and online and whatever would. Um, virulently object to the idea that you, Lindsey Graham, and your, your foreign policy preferences could be you know, representative of their, uh, what they, they think of as their political tendency. And, uh, you know, Lindsey Graham especially, essentially res- uh, responded that, you know, Trump is a vehicle for, you know, that he and Trump, there's no, basically, there's no significant difference in his mind between Trump and himself on, on foreign policy. So he, uh, <laughs> yeah, I because I mean he, he's confident that he can, you know, manipulate Trump to basically do what he wants. You know, I bet you if you if it was that other thing, if it was that Stephen Miller thing, I think that's more that that was uh, Jeff Sessions was involved with that. I think that would you would find more anti-interventionist. This thing, this America First thing, seems like it seems like a uh, like a sort of the neocon wing of of Trumpism. Um, yeah, like I don't know though because it's like I'm sure most of the people there would repudiate the idea that they're neo they're neocon at all. Um, no, maybe not Lindsey Graham. That's on the extreme end. But like you know, for here's another example. Okay, so uh, John Ratcliffe, who was the director of national intelligence under Trump for uh, like a year and a half or something. Um, you know, he he was uh, castigated when he was in office as overly um, deferential to Trump, like like being too willing to accommodate Trump and, you know, flout intelligence structures in service of Trump, right? And, um, and he, he moderated, a, uh, you know, co-moderated a panel where he was praising... So this is a guy... I mean, I don't know how you could call John Ratcliffe a tried and true, like, neoconservative or something, given how he was depicted within the Trump milieu over the past couple of years. Um, maybe you can make that argument. I, I, I don't know. It seems a bit odd. But uh, either way, um, you know, he, he was co-moderating the panel that was specifically on foreign policy and national security. And uh, he, his co-panelist was uh, Keith Kellogg, who was, still, who was uh, you know, a longtime top Trump advisor, uh, you know, general of, you know, retired general. And um, uh, Ratcliffe introduced one of the panelists, this guy, guy Congressman Mike Waltz, as somebody who embodies America first. <laughs> um, and who <laughs> uh, he hoped 
will be, you know, the you know, one of the leading Republicans in the majority if the if they win the the midterms. And you know, as, as you might have seen if you saw followed what I was, uh, you know, tweeting, uh, Mike Waltz was uh, you know reported having just returned from uh, Kiev and was now convinced that the U.S. needs to send in. Uh, uh, special military advisors into Ukraine to coordinate the operations of these uh, increasingly advanced weapon systems that are being deployed into the country. And uh, he said actually that the the British uh, British special advisors are already doing this inside Ukraine. Um, so they're what they're, I mean, they're inside planning. What are they doing again? They're basically uh, coordinating logistics around these weapon systems from inside Ukraine. Like they're um, both tra- like training, you know, Ukrainian forces, but also, I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's slightly ambiguous what they're doing. Like I specifically asked Waltz, is he saying that these special forces, these special advisors that are there on behalf of the UK and that the special advisors that he would want to be there on behalf of the US as well are engaged in combat and he kind of didn't quite answer. I mean, the only, th- the only thing that he would say was that he's not calling on this, you know, hypothetical force to be on the front lines. But, you know, there, there are combat tasks that they could carry out without being on the front lines. So, um, you know, clearly, it would just this would be a, a it would be a fairly undeniable uh, escalation in just the uh, the nature of the American uh, military commitment. But it's funny because he's presenting this as a remedy for what he admits is like a is a massive lack of information as to how these weapon systems are even being used in the first place once they're entering Ukraine. Like, he acknowledges that the U.S. has no uh, capacity to monitor whether these weapon systems are being used in any kind of defensible way. Um, And his solution to that is to send more troops, essentially, into Ukraine. (laughs) Um, so like, you know, Waltz was, was a staunch proponent of military aid to Ukraine, uh, this whole entire time, but, you know, that rather than seeing to it from the outset that there could be any like monitoring mechanism, he's now saying that the problem that he helped create meaning the problem of lack of insight into whether there is proper use of these weapon systems, that now needs to be remedied by an additional deployment of U.S. forces into the territory of Ukraine. Um, Now, I mean, I don't think, I mean, my sense is that that proposal wouldn't gain a lot of traction. Like I asked uh, Senator uh, Lankford about it from Oklahoma, And uh, he basically dismissed out of hand that he would be willing to uh, entertain that, meaning any kind of deployment of advisors, quote-unquote advisors, which is sort of a euphemism. I mean, people have been pointing out rightly that that was what the uh, 
buildup of American forces in, Ukraine, in uh, Vietnam was originally uh, were originally called you know before Johnson launched a full fledged war, um, but you know there's uh, acknowledgement you know there was acknowledgement even by Lankford that they really have no visibility at all into these uh, weapon systems at least that the member, members of Congress are aware of. So um, you know it was good to uh, get that basically confirmed at least. Uh, verbally by by members of congress who um who even in some cases had voted for, in most cases actually at this summit had, had voted for the provision of of military aid and what was what was trump's speech like i mean to see he, he sometimes like goes off script uh what did he talk about yeah you know the 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 speech was portrayed as supposed to uh, as being a policy speech right which is kind of funny that like trump is going to give some sort of muted and serious just policy speech um but it was mostly devoted to you know it was supposed to be around criminal justice policy um so you know for like the, for the first third or so of the speech he was basically reading prepared remarks with a little bit of improvisation interspersed but but not as much as you'd expect from like a typical trump speech so it was actually kind of low energy and uh and restrained and even a bit boring because uh you know he he came on stage initially with you know proud to be an american blaring and making it seem like it was going to be you know a quasi you know campaign rally but then it was just uh like immediately deflated into a relatively uh, unexciting <laughs> um, policy type speech where, you know, he said, you know, we should reinstate the drug, pa- the uh, death penalty for drug dealers and <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> he, he said that um, another, another, I don't, I don't know if we've ever had death penalty for drug dealers. Well, maybe not reinstate, but you know, in state, <laughs> um, you know, Newt Gingrich used to promote that in the nineties. So, you know, Gingrich was there and was, uh, you know, getting nice accolades from Trump. And Gingrich actually said in one of his own speeches uh, uh, earlier on in the summit that he regarded the America First Policy Institute as equivalent to the Heritage Foundation in the run-up to the Reagan administration. So uh, yeah. by so Gingrich is telling... Here's the difference yeah. between Stephen Miller and Jeff Sessions and their thing. I mean, Jeff Sessions was the first senator, I think maybe the first any, anyone in Congress uh, to to endorse Trump. And so there was real ideological affinity. First senator, yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, he might have been first congressman. Was he, was he, was he, was he no, he wasn't the... No, there were, there were congressmen prior to that, but he was the uh, first member of the Senate. Okay, yeah. And so, like, I mean, the, and then Miller, like, hopped on very early. Um, and I think uh, uh, Sessions has always been sort of skeptical. But you look at his interviews with stuff on like Russia and Ukraine. I mean, the Middle East wars. He's always been sort of less hawkish uh, than these other guys. So th- those guys are doing something. And there is like you know, it's like the people who it's like the, the people who like like Trump from the beginning sort of liked him because they thought he was more anti-interventionist. And these, but these people, these people are going to have the power. I mean, it's going to be. I think Pompeo could be Secretary of State again. Uh, you know, I, you, it seems like the American First, uh, whatever whatever this thing is, Policy uh, Institute, it seems like they're really setting the stage. So it's going to be basically the first Trump uh, pre- Trump, Trump administration over uh, all over again. People say like, you know, now here's a, let, me, let me ask you about the uh, the uh, 
the speech. It seems to me like his energy level is directly related to like how much he agrees with or likes the audience. So like his energy level is sort of off the charts for uh, rallies and then something like, um, you know, uh, uh, stuff like you know, tur- uh, Turning Point USA. I mean, it seems to be there's just what he has the cr- crowd of the palm of his hands. Seems like uh, stuff like this. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that he feels like these. You know, they're his people, but they're not like you know, they're not, they're there. They're not like the you know, they're not the audience he feels more, most comfortable with. Um, well, yeah, I mean that may be true. I don't know, but <coughs> about a third of the way in, after this relatively low energy portion. He just couldn't help himself and then just went completely off script and did like a 10 minute routine, uh, a comedy, stand up comedy routine on trans women in sports. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, and then, and then he was really into it and everyone was laughing and going crazy. Um, so that seemed more like a quintessential, I guess, you know, Trump moment. Um, although it is like, I don't know, sort of a strange issue for him to be that focused on, but, um, Oh, this is this is his issue. This is right. You know, and then you know, and then yeah. Eventually, a four more years chance started. So you know, how could he not like that? Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm sure he must like on on a visceral level the fact that you still had big sections of the Republican, if you want to put it this way, establishment who were present there to kind of give their him their implicit support. Like Kevin McCarthy was. At the speech, I mean, he was he took part in the summit. He was on a panel. And he was in the audience when Trump was speaking. You know, Steve Scalise, the same thing. Uh, oh, this, um, so this, is, this is the esta- this is the establishment domesticated Trumpism. That's yeah, it's just like I mean, uh, it's like it just it's just um, a generic Republican grouping. Yeah, yeah. There's that they brand as America special. first. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, but that's. Uh, You know, it's it's been the case for years that the branding of America First had been kind of just subsumed <laughs> into generic Republican I'm just li- I'm just identity. Looking at, I'm just looking at the website. It's like May 2021. It's like a statement. What happened in Gaza over the last two weeks was entirely avoidable and was a result of President Biden's weakness. Hamas attacks against Israel are the direct result of blah, blah, blah. The Trump administration offered a new approach. Okay, so yeah, I, I, yeah, this is, that's what this is. You're, you're right. And I think that, you know, I talk to people, you know, in, in Trump world, and a lot of them say, and the media reporting actually says this too, that uh, Trump sort of soured on the establishment. He soured on the Republican establishment. He doesn't talk to McConnell and more and like the generals that he like at the end he thought they were like all betrayed him and he hated them all. And like they're like he's gonna come in, he's gonna appoint, you know, Doug McGregor as Secretary of Defense, and he's gonna appoint all these, you know, people who agree with him ideologically and are gonna be loyal to him. Um and, you know, are are, you know, skeptical of NATO and all this stuff. But th- but this sounds like you know, this sounds like that's not gonna happen. It sounds like it's going to be the exact same people from the first administration, um, and you really, it's really there's no reason to expect anything. Else. I don't know. You know, there might be there might be some difference in the personnel uh, for uh, you know the second administration, uh, but it's hard to see it being that dramatic of a break. You know, I I I think you know he doesn't yeah he doesn't talk to McConnell anymore, but that just seems like a personal conflict um you know where you know mcconnell denounced him for january 6th and then even though mcconnell's wife had been appointed 
to the administration, uh, et cetera. Um, yeah. so so, like, the, but, but you think if he soured on the establishment, I mean, how could it be that the Republican leadership in the House yeah, no, you're is, right. is behind him, you know? Well, did you see the Axios piece? On, uh, yeah, on, yeah, I uh, I read most of that. Yeah, I think yes. um, you know it's uh, you know there's like a potpourri of different groups, I guess, who are going to be jockeying for power. But I don't really have, I don't really see much reason to think that these more quote unquote establishment factions who who brand themselves as carrying the mantle of the successful first Trump administration, I don't really see any reason to believe that they're going to be like frozen out. No, no, that's what I'm saying. It doesn't look like, I mean, it sounds like if you read the Axios piece, it sort of sounds like that, but I think it's, it doesn't actually, it doesn't even sound like that. Cause that Axios piece is about going after the deep state, blah, blah, blah. And like this, you know, this is something Republicans can actually get, uh, get behind, but you do hear like these reports of like, you know, what Trump is going to be different. Uh, no, I know. I agree with you. You're, you're, you're right. I think he's probably going to take the path of least resistance, uh, which means just going to this America first thing and just, you know, reappointing Pompeo and just going to the, you know, he's not going to appoint Mark Milley or, uh, or uh, Mattis. I mean, they're going to be more, you know, they're going to be establishment folks who are like more uh, conventional down the line Republicans. Um, and, the, you know, that, that they're going to be more hawkish in the end. So, yeah, I, th- I think I think you're right. It's probably going to be a probably going to be even a more hawkish administration of anything. Well, I, I think that, well, I, I mean, I don't know. It's sort of unclear. I do think there probably would be more of a streamlined vetting process for people entering the administration where, because in 2016 into 2017, it was entirely ad hoc. You know, like Chris Christie during the transition was initially in charge of, um, you know, assembling a uh, roster of potential appointees and then was out of nowhere fired by Jared Kushner and they just had, and they had to do it and, and they had just tossed out the months of work that Christie had done to, you know, prepare to staff the administration and, uh, and then just like did it, you know, uh, at, at, a at an excel, at an accelerated pace, you know, with, with hardly any time to go. So I think, you know, given that they have lots of time now to prepare and, you know, it's not going to be a shock to anyone if Trump is going to be in a position where he can staff the government, they could probably have a bit more of like a, uh, of a defined set of metrics or something, you know, whereby they can judge whether a certain official is in keeping with Trump's, you know, philosophy, broadly speaking. But I just think that the, 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 the philosophy we're talking about here. Yeah. I mean, the, the philosophy that we're talking about here, it's like, I don't even know what it is. It's just, it's just no, well, he has a Repu- generic Republican. He has a philosophy, but he's not, he's not, very interested in implementing it like you look at him he keeps bringing up like for example during the first administration he keeps bringing back how much nato sucks and he doesn't want to be in nato and he doesn't want to defend you know south korea and like that nobody's like prodding him to do this he just keeps doing this on his own and like how about how much he doesn't want to be in afghanistan and all the generals are opposing him so he has he has more anti-interventionist instincts i think that's clearly true whether he has sort of the patience and the focus and the willpower to uh, implement that is the is the question. Yeah. So anyway, one one moment at the summit that I think could be a segue here is, um, you know, when uh, Gingrich was speaking because I think he's some kind of honorary. Uh, I forget the title that they gave him for this or- organization, but he's in some sort of honorary position, and he was you know saying how vital 
the institute will be for, you know, setting the agenda for the next Republican administration. And um, uh, Gingrich took a moment in his speech to uh, praise Nancy Pelosi, to commend. He said, I commend (laughs) Nancy. And he got a round of applause, which you might not have expected. But, of course, it was his endorsing Pelosi's planned, apparent planned trip to Taiwan. Because because Gingrich, because Gingrich was the uh, previous highest ranking official to ever go to Taiwan. This was twenty you know twenty five years ago as Speaker of the House. He went to Taiwan, although it was much different circumstances because he had also gone to Beijing, and it was far less. It was a lot less fraught than it is uh, today. So, you know, Gingrich gave. Uh, the bipartisan seal of approval to Pelosi going, and uh, I was briefly—I briefly ran up to uh, Gingrich and uh, asked him, you know, is is the fact that you uh, gave uh, you know praise Pelosi in that way in, an indication that there's actually much less of a uh, distinction between the parties? on very important issues, notwithstanding, you know, the partisan rancor that we're usually so preoccupied with. And uh, he said, yes, <laughs> as if it's like a great thing. Like he was inspired by that. <laughs> um, whereas I was, I was asked, I mean, I didn't, I wasn't overtly sarcastic in asking it, but like <laughs> it was sarcastic. Um, and, uh, you know, he said basically, um, you know, he's glad that everybody, including the Democrats, have gotten so much more hawkish on China. Mm-hmm. Huh. This is, that's, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's incredible. So do you, I mean, do you, so the, your were I mean, your were what would you think, what do you think would be more dangerous um, in 2024, a second Biden administration or a Trump administration, safer prospects or something like war with China? Yeah. Um, for war with China, I think a Republican administration of any kind would probably be more yeah. likely to result in that because, you know, you had, uh, you know, Pompeo you know, as, as a private citizen went to Taiwan earlier this year and um, is advocating the, you know, the formal abandonment of the one China policy. So basically declaring Taiwan a formal, you know, independent ally of the U S um, and Mark Esper who, you know, despite getting, you know, having a, a acrimonious relationship with Trump, um, he was there a week or two ago on a uh, delegation with the Atlantic Council, of course, and um, he came back advocating for the uh, abolition of the one China policy as well. So I think, you know, it was, it's probably more likely for Republicans to uh, be more aggressive in, um, you know, uprooting the foundations of the U S China relationship for the past 50 years or whatever, and entering into a more overtly belligerent posture. Um, does that mean that Republicans would be over, overall more dangerous on a foreign policy level? I mean, I don't know. I think it, it's it's like they're bo- the both parties are dangerous on different issues, and they can overlap as well. Um, but I think I think uh, 
Republicans right now are most are, are more politically interested in demonstrating how willing and eager they are to quote confront China. And um, what's but what, what's interesting right now is that more and more Democrats seem to just be echoing them. Um, but you know, if you had to pick one or the other, I think Republicans are probably going to be more more uh, more uh, you know bellicose. Yeah, I agree. What I do you think? I, I think I think I yeah I agree. The the China rhetoric, there is a demagoguery on the right, and like the left is also has demagoguery, but it's like their demag demagoguery demagoguery is like you know I think they have like so like that, that's not their main thing. Like they want you to think about racism and sexism, and like China doesn't make, uh, you know, the top of the list. Um, and for Republicans, it's like China is like the thing they go to. Like if some corporation is doing something bad, it's like you're in bed with like China, right? It's like you know China is buying, you know, people from China are buying homes uh, in the country. Well, not they don't. You know, it's a Chinese Communist Party. I mean, they make sure to always say that in very stark tones. Yeah, yeah, and even and like underscore Chinese, the word communist. Yeah, and even like the idea Chinese nationals are like considered like enemies. Like anyone who's like Chinese, like buying property in the U.S. is is, is some kind of threat. Uh, so yeah, China is taking a very I think bad space in sort of the conservative uh, you know worldview. I think it's like a it's like you know seen as like the root of all evil and the battle. And like yeah, the Democrats. It's just another it's just another foreign policy issue. It's like a way to seem tough. Oh, we stand up to Putin. We stand up to Maduro. Uh, we stand up to Xi Jinping. It's not, it's not sort of like the center of their, you know, the, the center of their worldview and how they, they understand American politics and what they think, you know, uh, uh, you know, what they think is going to like rally their base. Uh, so yeah, I think that the, uh, and you know, a lot of these people are unstable. A lot of these people are 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 crazy. I mean, these are the these are the Bolton types. I mean, the Democrats have some very hawkish people. They tend not to have you know the tail end tail end people like Bolton. Those tend to be uh, conservatives. People like Jack Keane. Well, and Bob Menendez is like he's yeah. But, but, and, and Bob Menendez is the, always amongst the most hawkish senators on any issue. Yeah, right. and yeah. Uh, you know he's he. I, I was just looking it up earlier today. He and Lindsey Graham have a bill that they co-sponsored. They that they they jointly introduced to uh, formally. Uh, I don't think they're calling to formally rescind the one China policy, but basically they're looking to do the most far-reaching update to U.S. policy on Taiwan since the seventies, where it, it, more or less it's now like considered a formal ally, and you know they're drastically ramping up the um you know the military cooperation and so on so i mean they're you know i, I think one way to think about it is you know in terms of the if you want to uh, use the term grassroots among democrats the most ardent passionate sentiment is going to be you know anti russia right and where and among republicans the most ardent grassroots passionate sentiment is going to be probably more anti china but those basically both converge at the elite level, and there's not really a whole lot of distinction. I mean, like Pelosi going to Taiwan, notwithstanding this incredibly fraught climate, is a much more um, oh, let me is a much more belligerent and provocative symbolic action than. Any Republican really has taken on China. So, I mean, there's, there's, I think there's a real, uh, on the elite level, there's just a convergence between 
China and Russia as these objects of, of antipathy. And I also do think, you know, one, a, a big reason why Democrats now are increasingly sounding indistinguishable from Republicans on China, which is sort of surprising. I mean, you wouldn't necessarily have expected that a couple years ago when it was more associated with being the bugaboo of, of Republicans. I mean, it's definitely because now that now that China is seen as the this, you know, uh, uh, inalterable ally of Russia um, and, you know, Russia is where they're the most. What, what they're the most animated by, and now that that, that they perceive there to be this direct connection with China, um, then now they're kind of shifting more and more to a position of hostility that almost perfectly resembles the Republican position as well. Yeah, I don't think that the Democrats, even on Russia, are as crazy as the Republicans are on China. <laughs> I mean, if a Rush, if like a Russian, one Russian individual buys um, uh, like uh, you know uh, some property like that does not become an issue on like MSNBC right it's oh always, yes it does during Russiagate like, that was a huge issue I mean there was no, always these like little rabbit connected. holes around like how Trump supposedly yeah, sold prop, condos and property uh, co- uh, condos in Florida to Russian nationals yeah, and yeah, that would seem to, to be suspicious no no it has to specifically be connected to Trump in yeah. conservative media went crazy because some Chinese company bought some like um, wheat mill or something, something like stupid in like South Dakota. And this, this or one of those states, one of those Midwest Plain states that's, that's empty. And this became like, this was on Laura Ingram. This was the Chinese Communist Party is like buying up the country. I mean, there's nothing like that. A Russian buys, you know, a, a McDonald's in, in, in Florida. Uh, that doesn't become a story on liberals. Yeah, they, you know, the Trump thing is, is your well, right. No, I mean, they're kind, they're kind of, I mean, they're kind of is I mean because they'll they'll say that you know especially if if the purchaser of a property can be claimed to be con- a, a Russian oligarch and therefore somehow tenuously connected to the Putin regime you know I think you know you do see that that line of thought used uh, quite a bit actually I, I don't I don't I don't think it's comparable you have do you watch I mean do you watch these Fox segments do you ever see these like Laura Ingram segments about Chinese influence there's no there's no equivalent yeah. because it's not oligarchs it's not <coughs> politician it's completely someone is Chinese and they're doing something in America therefore be very very scared uh, it's really it really is I mean it's 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 pretty ridiculous and it's I I, I think it's I think it's I mean I think it's frightening I think you have to be sort of crazy to start a world war with a, another nuclear power and I think we're like conservatives on China I think are like in that level of frighteningness and yeah Democrats on Russia are also uh, you know are also pretty scary too although I, you know I think the most hawkish Republicans on on Russia are probably as bad or as worse the, as the uh, uh, more hawkish um, Democrats, but this is this is the Democrats thing. is it's, it's sort of closer to normal partisan nonsense. Well, the Republican thing, it, it's like you know, there's this recurring theme of they need a foreign enemy. So it just reminds me. I mean, these are the people who would have been you know the craziest people about the war on terror. The the people who were most yeah. upset about the Afghanistan withdrawal. You know, there's this general willingness to just sort of go to the max on these you know foreign policy issues. It's very unhealthy, and it's you know. It's potentially it's potentially frightening. I think you know. I think someone like uh, maybe this is getting off topic, but you know, I wonder if like other. I wonder like what other Republicans would be like. I think Trump is probably going to uh, empower the most extreme ones. I think other Republican politicians. There are some who might be, you know, just for their own political interests, might want to avoid a disastrous, you know, war with China or some kind of you know economic uh, downturn that would accompany a uh, souring 
of relations. But yeah, you know, the, the, the anti-China, I mean, thing is, I, I think very, you know, very, uh, uh, it's very concerning. Well, what do you think are the roots of that? I mean, is, is it just this generalized need, as you mentioned, for re- Republicans to always need like a foreign enemy to position themselves against? So like the, the it, it, it's just occupying the same role that, you know, radical Islam occupied 10, 15 years ago? Or is there something more specific to China? I mean, are they really, are they truly that exercised about the fact that the ruling party is called the Chinese Communist Party? I, I, I did watch one of these Fox segments uh, recently, and it was, uh, it was DeSantis on Laura Ingram. And, you know, Laura Ingram brought up this whole issue of uh, China to him, and he was talking about how in Florida they're not going to stand for it anymore. And then, you know, he said he was, she shut down, he was talking about how they're shutting down the Confucius Institute in Florida. And he's, you know, they're examining this issue of Chinese nationals buying uh, land and, and this sort of thing. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, I, I think this is just understood to be almost like an article of faith for any, any, any ambitious Republican. Like, what is the, what is the genesis of it? Cause you know, Trump did when Trump campaigned in 2016 and was talking about China a lot, it was sort of, he was sort of bringing a fairly marginal issue more into the mainstream, but it was almost entirely around just like economics, Right, like like uh, sending jobs overseas, and you know, China. He actually said uh, he would always say stuff like, "Oh, I actually like China, and I respect yeah, China yeah. Uh, because they're smarter than us. They're smarter than our politicians." Did, did we ever talk about when Trump put sanctions on Hong Kong? How he justified it? No, I don't. Did he put uh, sanctions on Hong Kong? I don't even remember. Yeah, that. there was the well. Hong Kong had some kind of like uh, advantage in like some American trade relations, and after the Chinese cracked down on Hong Kong. There was all these calls to like take it away to make China to not treat Hong Kong better for like trade purposes than China, basically. And Trump, like you know, he eventually did that. He sided with the Hawks, but then like the whole point of it was supposed to be like you know this was supposed to be like a humanitarian thing, like China's treating Taiwan badly. So we're like it's supposed to be like a sort of a sanction on China. And then I saw Trump talking about it, and they asked Trump about it, like, at a press conference. And he's like, oh, you know what? Hong Kong's been ripping us off for so long. I mean, that's we're going to put an end to that. We're going to have better trade deal with Hong Kong. So, like, he missed the entire point of, like, what the Hawks were doing. It was supposed to be, like, they were supposed to be doing it for the sake of the people of Hong Kong. And he just made it into, like, yeah, we're screwed over, <laughs> we're screwed over yeah. Hong Kong. And so this is, this is Trump. I mean, Trump, yeah, does not care about this humanitarian stuff. He doesn't, he doesn't just want to fight fight. Um, but even but even on a even on a personal level, like pre COVID, I remember a tweet from Trump where he was Trump was captured, saying how wonderful he is on foreign policy. Trump yeah. was captured by the establishment, so he used to. It's the same thing with Russia when they used to ask him, like you know, about Putin. He'd say, "Oh, you know, Putin's not that bad of a guy. Are we so perfect?" That ended like in the last like few years of his presidency. Anytime he's asked about asked about Putin, he'd say, "I'm tougher on Putin than anybody." He used to occasionally go off script. Same thing happened, I think, with Iran. He like at the beginning when he was running for president in the primaries, he said he was like the only one at one point who said he wouldn't tear up the Iran nuclear deal. But of course, then he does tear up the Iran nuclear deal, and you know he's he's more hawkish on Iran than anybody. There was a general sort of domestic domestic domestication of Trump on foreign policy to an extreme degree, like on every single uh, issue. Right, um, but even but but as recently as early 2020, Trump was personally praiseworthy of Xi. And yeah, yeah. I don't think I don't I don't think I don't think that I don't think that any any major political figure today, especially like an ambitious uh, perspective 
a presidential candidate could say anything like that about Xi in either party. It became they became the scapegoat for COVID. Right in the beginning, it was like COVID is no big deal, and then it became yeah, it was all the China virus, and it's all their fault. So they needed, you know, it was a political reaction to the uh, to the development of the virus. Um, but as far as you know, Republicans and what they're, uh, you know, I think there's, I think that these people are. I mean, it's like so cliche. I don't like to sound like liberals and like oh, they're just you know. They're just prejudiced and they're just racist. But I mean, pretty much. I mean, I, I think they're nationalistic. I think they dislike. I think they they are comfortable seeing foreigners as the enemy. I think that's you know that's sort of how you get the immigration stuff. That's how you get the anti trade stuff, and that's how you get the foreign policy stuff. I mean, I think there's just an idea um, that foreigners are bad, um, and you know that's it. That's very easily manipulable uh, by people. You know, people like Pompeo generals, people in the military industrial complex. Uh, I don't think it's much more complicated than that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was more, the reason why they were, you know, uh, I mean, they, they were able to generate antipathy toward the Soviet Union over the course of the Cold War, not just because like Russians were foreigners, but because they overlaid a whole like, ideological battle on top of it. Right, and now they're they're doing something very similar to with with China. Hence, their the constant emphasis of yeah. them being uh, you know com- communists and how uh, you know they have this totalitarian system that is antithetical to but it's not, it's American really freedoms it. and all this. It's really not about everything because the, the most hawkish people in China are often people. Do you, do you follow this guy named uh, Eldridge Colby on, on Twitter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who who wrote the National Defense Strategy? In the Pentagon. Um, yeah, so this guy is one of the main arguments. One of the things he keeps arguing is like, stop talking about democracy. Stop talking about like ideology. Like, we're going to have to be friends with like Vietnam um, and these uh, you know other uh, dictatorships because we have to fight China. Like he wants to be le- that guy wants to be less hawkish on Russia. Um, so and, like even look at like somebody like Pompeo. Like Pompeo was going around to like the Gulf Arab countries, you know, treating them like his best friend. So it's not about democracy or, or freedom or any like they're they're not even really pretending at all i mean especially the middle east policy uh they made all these you know uh deals and they were so buddy buddy with all these uh uh, uh gulf monarchies um so it's 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 uh you know it's they're not even try- i mean they're not even you're right they're like a little bit of this like oh free world but they're not even trying i mean it, it's like it's like barely veiled i mean this kieran skinner woman you know the black woman who says oh this is basically a race war with china uh, you know, that's, that's basically, you know, it's basically not much more than that. It's just like Chinese are bad. They're foreign. They're different. Yeah. They'll talk about, you know, they're dictators and they lock up Uyghurs and stuff, but it, it, that seems to be relatively small, you know, especially compared to like the cold war. It just doesn't seem to be that there's much of that. Right. But I mean, isn't it also the case too, that when they say that, you know, China poses a threat to the U S or, you know, when they, they say, you know, you'll always hear this refrain now that, you know, the number one threat to the United States is China, which, you know, they usually say in service of making the point that, of course, Russia is a problem at the moment. But longer term, we need to make sure that we have our focus set on China as the number one threat. But when they say threat, really what they seem to be saying is that China could supplant the U.S. in terms of becoming the number one economic power. Like, they're not actually saying that there's a physical security threat to, the like, the United States mainland from China, or are they? Because um, I think 
maybe, yeah, of, you know, the fear of foreigners or the animus toward foreigners has to be a, a fa- factor, but it seems like they're just kind of concocting whatever, you know, surface level justification they can give to, you know, uh, wanting to preserve the U.S. as the number one global hegemon and China, quote unquote, threatens that. Yeah. I, I think that's right. I think that that's sort of the, you know, this IR theory kind of stuff is sort of a, a gloss. I mean, this was the original neocon thing, right? Stop everyone from, uh, you know, stop anyone from uh, rising up and potentially challenging the United United States. So, yeah, I, I think it's a simple, you know, there's a simplistic sort of, you know, foreigners are, are bad kind of attitude. And China has, uh, you know, China has become sort of the uh, the target. Of that, I mean, you could like worry about India or something if you wanted to, but it's like you can't, you know. You, there, there's only like you know, there's only uh, one or two countries at a time. You could, <laughs> you, there's only a few things at a time you could worry about. And you know, the China stuff really picked up when the war on terror stuff disappeared. I mean, it really was like they got they got disillusioned with the war on terror. Um, it was winding down, and then like both 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 uh, parties, you just see the China stuff just you know take off around 2016 or 2017 around there. Yeah, you know, one thing about it that annoys me is just, you know, I'm I'm willing to admit that I do not have a great understanding of internal dynamics within China. Like, it's a vast country on the other side of the world that has, you know, political and governing structures and cultural, you know, Norms that are opaque to me, with because I haven't had the firsthand fam, uh, you know, familiarity with them. You know, obviously there are still things you can learn about China from afar, uh, but I, I just, I'm just, you know, it really it grates me how the people talking about China now in such like with such certitude almost make it seem like they have like they're they're somehow like. You know these newfound experts on Chinese society, and I just don't believe them. I mean, it's just, just, just all this like uh, <laughs> it's the same thing. Nut- it's like Putin wants this. The tap- yeah, she is watching Afghanistan. Putin moved yeah. in after seeing the television. Well, that's what they were saying over and over again at this uh, at this summit. You know, G is watching what goes on in Ukraine <laughs> to calibrate his response. It's like, okay, what does that mean? G is watching. Like, G exists in the <laughs> He's world. Sitting in front of the TV, along with yeah. He's entertained by American politics. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, this is they have. Yeah, they have confidence. They have, uh, you know, foreign policy analysts that uh, you know be sort of uh, you know known for their uh, overconfident, you know, uh, uh, you know, prognoses about what you know Ford leaders are thinking and uh and doing uh yeah it's uh, yeah and, and it's always like you know it's always like in a predictable direction like they they, they need you to be taught like they only have their only op their only like human emotion is like you know fear like they're they're just sort of like these wild animals who will keep <laughs> keep attacking unless you show them that like you're like scarier than they are yeah it's a uh, very uh uh, did they keep? They kept. Did, did anyone mention Afghanistan at the conference? By the way, did they say that she was watching the, uh, the Afghanistan withdrawal? Well, it was only mentioned as a way of showing, or, or as a, as, a, as evidence that Biden was weak, and that weakness was seized upon by Putin to invade Ukraine, and is going to be could be further seized upon by Xi. So they don't. They don't. They never really talk about Afghanistan like as such. It's just this like weird narrative that they constructed uh, around how it sort of supposedly um, discredits Biden. 
Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that, that was the only way in which it was, it was brought up that I saw. Yeah. And, it, and it's always, and it's, it's not like, you know, what Trump would have done in Afghanistan. It's like, is there, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing about that, of course, right? No, not really. I mean, Trump, and Trump, Trump didn't talk about foreign policy much at all. Um, at the very tail end of his speech, when he was sort of just um, uh, improvising, he, he said, you know, the, this uh, whole Ukraine thing never would have happened if I were in office, which actually uh, Orban said recently as well. So uh, really? maybe, there's, maybe there's something to it. I don't know. Um, and he said, uh, you know, also we would have never had this, you know, the, they were, uh, never had a problem with Taiwan either. So he didn't really give a, a developed position on a much of anything except to just repeat what he said a bunch of times now, which is that, you know, for so for whatever reason, they never would have happened if he was in office. So, I mean, who yeah. knows? Uh, that Orban thing, are you sure? That's, that doesn't sound like Orban. No, he said it. In the, in the speech that was uh, that Orban gave recently, that was really controversial because he says something about race mixing. I actually, I mean, I, I reserve judgment on that, not because I want to give the benefit of the doubt to Orban necessarily, but because I want to see like the full transcript and maybe there are some, you know, subtleties with the translation from, you know, the native language or whatever. But, uh, you know, in, in that speech, um, a lot of it was uh, apparently on the Ukraine situation. And he did say that if, if Trump and Merkel... We're still in office, Merkel, huh? Um, then there well, never would have been. Was it along the lines of like Trump would have been friendlier to Putin, not like Trump would have been tougher on Putin? Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't. I, you know, I'm not sure. I just know that he said that if Trump because the Merkel, and Merkel thing is interesting, because Merkel sort yeah. of got along with. Uh, yeah. Putin. Wait. So it's according to this uh, story that is because he's uh, Trump and Merkel would have taken seriously, taken into consideration the security guarantees Putin asked for. So it's like the opposite of the argument that conservatives and Republicans make, right? They say that because yeah. Putin would have been tougher on Trump, and Orban is saying he would have been softer on, on Putin, and he would have avoided the war. Yeah. So so he, so he would have been able to appease Putin. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Opposite. If Lindsey Graham would have been like, he would have like, you know, threatened Putin with like nuclear war, and you know, he would have Putin would have would have would have backed off. Yeah. I mean, um, Joni Ernst. I mean, every time she talks about this, these subjects, and this even going back to before the Ukraine war began, began she's the number one thing she brings up is how Biden is an appeaser. <laughs> I hate this woman. I, really I mean, they're sending longer. I mean, I, I don't know how. I mean, this is the this is the most bizarre form of appeasement maybe in world history. Where he send every week he's sending a new tranche of longer and longer range missiles, and that's appeasement. Uh, but you know this guy Waltz, you know who's you know a former, um, I think some kind of former special ops guy, or he was in the Green Berets, um, and you know he was saying a, ver- a variation of that. But he's, I mean, he's accusing Biden of purposely not. Sending requisite uh, arms to Ukraine in order to make it into a stalemate, um, and you know, according to him, and according to like Keith Kellogg, who is this top you know advisor to Trump and is always on Fox as a military expert, uh, you know, the the America First uh, position is to. Win the war once and for all, you know, by going all out and uh, not not holding back anything in, in what what's being sent to Ukraine, and even in the case of Waltz, you know, sending in actual ground forces in some capacity. 
Yeah, it's it's the America First position that says that America, like, who ends up ruling in a Trump administration? I, I don't think it's like Trump's instinct, but you're you're right. Uh, I think that's you know there's a there's a there's a, there's a, there is a pure Trumpism. It's like a religion. It's like there's a pure version, like in the Holy Book. There's like how it gets practiced, and Trumpism <laughs> yeah. is like that. I think that like the Jeff Sessions and the Stephen Miller are like you know like the fundamentalists of the Trumpist religion, and the other people are sort of you know able to use it for their their political ends. And those people tend to tend to tend to have the power. I mean, they tend to get the upper hand on most things. Well, I mean, there are so many. I mean, it really it is like a, a religion because there are so many convoluted layers of interpretation at this point. That apparently, like the original prophet Trump is no longer a Trumpist or is no longer MAGA or America First, according to some. Um, so you know, it's hard to even really <laughs> pin down what exactly is being talked about here, because like if you're saying, because uh, here's another point of I, I'm going to write about this more extensively at some point, but I'm curious what your retake is because you know if you if. Uh, Generally speaking, when you think of America first on a foreign policy basis, it's all about – it is more of a disinclination to intervene around the world, don't be the world's police, um, et cetera. And I, I just don't know – I don't get how that is supposed to be consistent with their positions on China and Taiwan. Like they're the most gung-ho about intervening in Taiwan. Like Josh Hawley – who I, I had thought was supposed to be the most like authentically MAGA senator. Um, he has all kinds of bills now in the works to expedite arms shipments to Taiwan and to uh, you know enhance you know military collaboration between the U.S. and Taiwan in uh, in order to uh, counteract a so supposed Chinese invasion. So Hawley wants basically the U.S. to be a combatant. Uh, alongside Taiwan against China, and like, how is that? Like, what's 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 anti-interventionist about that? Yeah, I don't know. I think Howley didn't. How hasn't Howley said some stuff like the U.S. shouldn't fight for Taiwan? Um, I mean, is is his position? I think his position is his position just like weapons uh, and, and stuff. I don't, I don't know, right? I, I'm sure it's I'm sure it's just all overall aggressive. Uh, so yeah, the, I can I can pull it up here. Uh, well, it's just, you know, uh, great danger. Um, okay, so here's, uh, here's Josh, Josh, Josh Hawley, April of this year. He introduced something called the Taiwan Weapons yeah. Export Act. Among, among other th- things, it would redesignate Taiwan as a member of the uh, country group A5 under this export regulations provision alongside US, other U.S. allies and partners, including NATO member states. Um Expedite license approval and other administrative barriers to arms sales in Taiwan. And uh, in 2021, he also introduced another. I mean, he's like apparently really passionate about Taiwan. I don't, I don't know where that came from, but he introduced something called the uh, Arm Taiwan Act of 2021. Mm-hmm. You know, he has a uh, you know he has a book coming out on masculinity. It's called Manhood. Yeah. Yeah, you should do a um, should read it and then do a chat. <laughs> yeah, well, but I mean, this is sort of the the equivalent of what was done with Ukraine, meaning arm it to the hilt, integrate U.S. and uh, uh, lo- uh, Ukrainian military capabilities. I mean, here's a theory: Russians are white and Chinese are not white. 
<laughs> I don't know. Howley is I guess Howley is against the Af- he was for the Afghanistan withdrawal too. I but guess. I mean, but so but that's but, but, I mean, but if this was 1982 and not 2022, you think the whiteness of Russians would be a decisive factor in like well, his views on the Soviet Union? Right. The ideology, if the ideology is that distant, right, it's communism. It's versus you know like the polar opposite of everything uh, American conservatives believe. Uh, that of course that 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 could matter more than the, uh, the the race stuff. I think that China is I think because they're different and they're foreign and they're not like us. It's com- a combination of race plus the system. Like if you know they were like sort of like us and have a democracy, I also think that that uh, you know would be harder to hate them in that case. But yeah, I do think it's like the cultural distance and the race and like the system is just so different that it like you know drives these people crazy. There's just nothing like you know they can hold on to that it's that's, com- that's common between us. Maybe you know. On a somewhat related note, it's sort of it's funny because right now uh, Russia is actually uh, embarking on like a diplomatic initiative in Africa, where they're kind of like assemb- they're kind of like a solidifying support among different African countries. And if you look at how it's being uh, like broadcast, they're using like anti-colonialist arguments, meaning they're saying, oh, look, these Western powers who are claiming to speak on behalf of all of civilized, uh, on behalf of all civilized countries, you know, they are, uh, they were your colonizers and, you know, Russia is, you know, therefore your, your true ally here. Yeah. The, you know, there is a kind of, there is, you know, this kind of populism, in the third world does sort of work. This is why India is not like that hawkish on Russia, because India sort of sees the West as, you know, uh, historically like pushing them around and historically, you know, trying to, you know, sort of still, still run the world. So I, I think this kind of things can, uh, I think these kind of things can work. Russia tends to, yeah, the Af- African countries, you know, it's like it's like the U.S. and the uh, European leaders are sort of mind melded, right? They, you know, basically whatever the State Department thinks, you, you know, Germany and the U.K. and France are sort of pretty much on board. Now, the rest of the world, I think, I think these kind of, you know, these kind of appeals can can and do work. Uh, yeah. Do you want to do you want to take questions? Since we were yeah, let's go to a, let's go to caller here, uh, Jonathan. You are up. Hello. Jonathan, are you there? If so, yep. you got to press there you are. Can you hear me? Yep. Yep. Um, yeah, I just wanted to note, because you guys are kind of touching on it. Did you guys, did either of you ever read the book, The Class of Civilizations? I read it, yeah. You know, it's it's interesting because I think, you know, he wrote that in 91 or 92, and I think there is kind of an emergent order that he was – I mean, he talked about it as a clash, but he talked about like these core civilizations, so India, China, Russia, the U.S., and I don't know. It just it seems like it, it kind of was almost prophetic in some ways, like elements of it. Other elements are kind of a little bit out there, but I don't know what you guys think about that. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, I don't I don't know if it works because it, like it's sort of the you know it has these civilizations. So I think it has like this is Huntington, like, right? Of, yeah, Samuel Huntington, right? It was a very influential yeah. book, and the idea was it's not going to be, you know, it's, like the the struggle will be not between countries, but between like uh, 
uh, you know, these civilizational blocks. So one will be like China and one will be like, you know, South Asia. And then one will be like, you know, I don't know. I don't know if he puts like India and Pakistan. He didn't get all of it. Yeah, I don't think he got like, he called it like the Buddhist uh, civilization. Yeah, he has like a Buddhist. Let me let me look up the map because there's a very nice map that's easy to find. Clash of civilizations. He he was stretching a lot of it. But I do think there is something, you know, everyone's talking about the multipolar world order but what, what are the those poles you know if you have like so like uh, yeah i don't five know, or six like, poles, you have this then... thing like is you have like this thing like islam so there's a wikipedia thing it's so, like iran and like the arab countries are like part of the same civilization and it's like no wait the Ira- iranians are fighting the uh you know are fighting the uh these gulf arab countries well, he... and then he has he has ukraine within the or so like you know you have ukraine and so this is sort of clash of civilizations because are they going to go west or are they not but he has all of eastern europe like in the russia camp which is like you know not uh, right, he has Korea and China and Vietnam in the same thing. No, Vietnam and China hate each other, um, and, and then he has like Latin America as like it's something. Latin America is basically it's not united; it's under the control of the United States. He has, you know, so yeah. I mean, it, it's there's something to it. I mean, these things correspond to something in reality, um, but I don't know. There's also a lot that you know that this doesn't explain. Mm-hmm. I think he talked about in the book about how the, the Islamic world, I mean, this is before 9-11 and everything, but he was talking about how there's not really a big power. They're all kind of they're these medium powers that will just struggle. And that, that part he did kind of get right. But Yeah, I, I, think Tur- I think Turkey is really emerging as sort of the leader of the Muslim world, if, if, any, if anyone is. But uh, yeah, I, it's much more... Um... That's funny. Mongolia doesn't get a civilization. He doesn't give Mongolia a civilization. And he cuts, <laughs> Tibet, he cuts Tibet out of China. Uh, but he won't. He won't let. I think he doesn't let Tibet. Be what, what is your? What exactly is your theory, Jonathan, as to the applicability here, like vis-a-vis China? Just that there's some there's something like inevitable about the quote-unquote clash that we seem to be on course for. The, the clash was just a framing, but it didn't have to be. I think it kind of is. It fits into the multipolar framework, and then you can kind of, I guess, fit pieces around that because he talks about how India, China, Russia, the U.S. And I think he said Brazil, actually. I can't remember what he said for the South America. And then you, you just would have kind of like Africa and and uh, Middle East would be kind of chaotic. And then you'd have Japan could kind of go either way or go, go its own way. But I think, you know, you do have right now, I think you really kind of have, uh, there's really four players, right? There's Europe, U.S., Russia, and China. And Europe is not really like a power, you know, it's not, it's not its own. I mean, it is, but it's not like a, there's so many problems with the, with the the state of Europe today. And plus it's, it's like a synthetic organization. There's not really like a, anything that actually keeps it together in the long run. And I kind of think that is coming to an end, if anything. Yeah. But right, well, maybe, maybe we should all uh, reread that book or read it for the first time. I admit, I think I might have read like article sized versions of it yeah. years ago, but it's I don't think not, I, I never read really, the whole book. I, mean, I, it's, I don't think it's worth reading the whole book. You look at the map, just Google map, Clash of Civilizations map. <laughs> you got the idea. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, um, to, to wrap up, Rich, I mean, what is your what is your just baseline take on why it is that Pelosi would be willing to potentially instigate a major international incident to to do this trip to Taiwan. Like, what 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 could her? I mean, what do you? Not that I'm asking you like to mind read Pelosi, but like, what is the incentive for a Democratic Speaker of the House of Representatives like at the at the end so of her career? Pelosi, one would think. So what I'm what I'm what I'm uh, 
what I'm, um, so there's a, so what I, from what I'm interested from what I'm seeing that they haven't even committed to the trip. Has Pelosi, um, you know, has Pelosi said anything about China? I've just seen people talk about it. I haven't heard her say anything. Uh, she hasn't confirmed that she's doing the trip, but only because yeah. she said that she doesn't talk about any trips that she takes in advance for security reasons. But she did say that, you know, it's important. She like did say in general terms that she regards it as very important to affirm support for Taiwan or something to that effect. I was actually reading, there's an article today, I think it was in the AP, which um, <clears throat> relayed that in, after Tiananmen Square, she took some kind of trip to to uh, China and like unfurled a banner in Tiananmen Square, uh, memorializing huh. like the these martyrs for democracy or something. And there was like controversy yeah, about this is a, this is a her potentially being arrested, but like they didn't arrest her because of diplomatic protocol. Yeah, uh, yeah. This is in Politico. Are you talking about this article? It says China. It says uh, Pelosi in China, the making of a. Progressive hawk. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think about it was Pelosi. in the AP. Yeah, I think it was in okay, the AP. Okay, well, they might have, they might have both wrote pretty much yeah. the same story. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, it's hard to analyze. I, I tend to think that, uh, yeah, I don't have, I'll be honest with you, I don't have a good mental model for liberals. I think I, my mind is too different from theirs to like really understand <laughs> them very well. Like, I have uh, theories about different kinds of conservatives. Like, I have a theory about like Josh Howley and like Trump and like DeSantis and and how they're different. And it's hard for me to get into Pelosi's brain. Um, but yeah, I, I think she's, um, you know, I, I don't know. She's, she's a believer. Or she, you know, it's not, well, it's I mean, really she, not she's been, she's been, she's been extremely zealous about the Ukraine situation. I mean, you, you see most of the time she appears anywhere in public. She's wearing the joint U.S., Ukrainian flag like lapel yeah. pin she she, 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 she went to she went to Kiev she she went to Kiev um and that was Zelensky and stuff so is she, um is she just any virtue signal like okay George Floyd oh believe women oh you maybe oh Taiwan is, I mean isn't that just her her sort of you know is that her operating manual uh I guess but I I do think though that because she was so involved I mean I do think a Maybe maybe this is my own myopia speaking, but I can't shake the theory that at least part of what's driving her is an extension of her being so enmeshed in these Trump era controversies around Russia. Like she said that the first impeachment of Trump, while ostensibly about Ukraine, right, and withholding military aid to Ukraine, her explanation for why Democrats needed to move urgently and impeach Trump in 2019 was that, quote, all roads lead to Putin. Yeah, but and, what, 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 so and, what does that have to do with China? And I'm saying now, now that China is seen as like the main international backer of Russia, I don't think it's. I don't think it's. Yeah, I don't, I don't, that, that I think, in part, that, I think that's in part like impelling her to take a more assertive stance here. I think if Russia Gate never happened, I, I could imagine her position being she might still be doing it. Yeah, it's not like China. Here's the, here's the AP article, by the way. It says, as a rookie member of Congress in 1991, she unfurled a black and white banner on Tiananmen Square that said, quote, to those who die for democracy, uh, diplomatic protocol prevented Chinese from detaining Pelosi. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe yeah. she is just a, she's just a true zealot, which is sort of strange, because, like, why would she be? But then again, who knows? Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm similarly puzzled. I'll, I'll be interested to see if she, 
you know, I think she has to go almost. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Well, that's what Mitch McConnell just said, that now, now that this has already become an issue, Pelosi must go. Otherwise, you know, she's handing a victory to, to the Chinese communists. So. Yeah, and it's possible. I mean, it's possible that there are people in the administration, the Pentagon, who they sort of tell her uh, not to. But, I, yeah, I, I tend to think that they'll do what's politically what politically is convenient for them. I'm, I'm really looking forward, Michael, to your uh, – uh, you are good at scouring people. So the uh, the, uh, the <laughs> tomato stuff was good. I like when you make fun of the uh, the America First people, the Republicans too. You you dish it out to all sides. <laughs> so I'll, I'll be looking forward to sort of the anecdotes of talking to Lindsey Graham and all these other people. Yeah, I think I'll probably uh, break it out into two two articles. So I think the first will probably be out tomorrow ish. I think I think yours are too. Sh- I think your NATO thing was like too short. Like these the people like the New Republic really? will go to like yeah, the New Republic will go to like an American First conference and they'll write like five thousand, ten thousand words or something. And yeah, you'll write, like, you'll write. Yeah, like but for for Substack though, it's kind of better to space it out a little more. You could you could space them out, but I, I think that even the. Um, I think even the uh, even if you put them all together, they're not that long. Like I think all your NATO stuff might have been—I don't know—I'm just guessing, 2,500 words or something. Was that, no, that I mean, uh, no, it would have been uh, okay. Well, maybe I three, so, maybe three, three articles. Funny. Yeah, uh, it would have been a, a six or seven thousand words total. Okay, maybe maybe they just seem they just seem that way because they're split up and because it's like such an easy and, and funny read. So maybe, well, there maybe you go. Maybe, well, yeah, that's... maybe just. That's the secret. <laughs> yeah, the New Republic guy sounds like. Yeah, it seems like I'm reading a you know a multi-volume history of the world. I just don't. Want yeah, to and they're not, they're not allowed to be that. funny either. So. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cool, man. All right. Well, Let's do justice to the gravity of the subject matter. Um, <laughs> All right, yeah, let's uh, let's leave it there, and you know, we'll convene, reconvene in due course. So thanks for joining, everybody. Uh, take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.